Hey there, I'm Ant Morehouse, and welcome to the Antitoxin Podcast. The Antitoxin is designed for the professional who has ticked all the social norm boxes but feels like something is missing. The entrepreneur at risk of losing perspective, and the dreamer who wants to turn their epic idea into reality. Join me and my awesomely authentic and vulnerable guests as we explore how to avoid living lives of quiet desperation and instead aim to achieve what I call the triple crown of having a fulfilling professional life while doing some good in this world while having a hell of a lot of fun along the way. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. My guest today is a currently serving senior member of the Australian Special Forces. And because he's currently serving, we're going to keep his name under wraps. We're just going to refer to him as BC. BC and I go way, way back. And he was a boss of mine a long time ago. And he taught me a lot about leadership, about vulnerability. And to this day, he's one of my favorite people and has an incredibly egoless style that really resonates particularly with the people who he is in charge of. I hope you enjoy the episode. Well, BC, cool. thank you very much for coming to the show today. I, I really appreciate it. And, you know, you and I have known each other for a long time and, you know, you were actually one of the people helping me through the planning phase of this podcast. So to, to have you onto the show is is terrific. Welcome, mate. Hey, thanks, Tone. Certainly a, pl- a privilege to... um do my first podcast with you. <laughs> For the listeners out there, this one will, will sound a little bit odd. So BC is a current serving member of the Australian Special Forces community, very high up or quite high up or very high up or whatever, depending on which perspective you're coming at it from in the community. And so that makes this a little bit weird. But BC, maybe chip in here by why would you want to come on to a show like this and why, you know, because it's a big deal. You're you're a senior officer now and I, I can imagine things would get sort of political as you climb the ladder. So what was the motivation for you to come on this side? I'd have nothing but respect for it, but I can imagine that 99% of people wouldn't feel comfortable with it. And certainly we're going we're gonna to sort of make sure that we're not, we're not telling any stories out of school or we're not sort of in any way... Um, you know, jeopardizing your career. But yeah, so it is a big deal and I, I do appreciate it. So maybe we could start there. Yeah, it's a good question, Tony. I think that intuitively the first thing that comes to mind is you know, we are a product of our upbringing and all the people that we've journeyed with. And you amongst, in fact, a growing number are very important to my journey. And one of the things I've always been grateful for is the fact that you and, and a few people like you have stayed in touch and the interesting thing is because as much as I might have been in a, a command role once upon a time in relation or in terms of our relationship, very early in that relationship, my mutual respect, my respect for you meant that I looked at things a little differently. And I was learning as much from you as perhaps I was trying to impart, although that was, you know, in my mind, sometimes questionable. But when you departed in particular from your military journey into your entrepreneurial journey, I guess I was conscious that if I was to so cut you away and remember the good times, then I would, I would be worse for it. Whereas through your experience, when you went to do uh, private security work in the Middle East, and then you went to, we came back to Australia, set up Dynamic and did a number of other things, I found myself learning through you. And every time we catch up, I was able to sort of calibrate what I was learning inside the military with what you were doing outside. And I guess the beauty is it's, it's fueled my curiosity and your podcast journey is no different. And equally, at the age of 46, you know, I'm closer to the end of my career than the beginning. So I've now got to start working out what I want to do when I grow up. I rely heavily on people like you, not only for motivation, but also to help show me the way and translate, I guess, what has been almost 30 years in uniform into being an effective member of society when I eventually leave. So it's, it's a combination of all those things. And I guess the final thing that comes to mind is, I would like to think after almost 30 years in the military and a, a lot of experiences both in and out of uniform and in really strange places that maybe I do have something that I can offer and blend with your thoughts and experience that others can draw from. So, yeah, this is a bit of a test for me as much as it is probably for you. 
Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. And you know, you and I would catch up once every five years or something like that on average, probably a little bit more now than, than of years gone by. But it's always interesting when we catch up because, you know, you get to see what things are like outside the system and I get to sort of live vicariously through you as you've, you know, well and truly grown up through the SF ranks. So let's start there maybe and, and you know, so you were qualified as both an SAS guy and as a commando, you were my boss when we were doing the, the counterterrorism stuff and you strike me as almost egoless and so you'll probably get embarrassed when I say this but even many years down the track, when I had a, a leadership coach and this leadership coach said, well, pay me a picture of the best boss you've ever had. You know, you were the, you were the picture that I, that I drew. And we don't want this podcast to turn into some sort of mutual appreciation society, but, <laughs> um, but you very much were. And, and what strikes me is that that special forces community, I mean, there's some big alpha type personalities in that world. And there mm-hmm. is a lot of ego in that world. And some of it is is very necessary and justified and, and, and some of it is just too many bulls in the paddock. How did you at least come across as basically egoless and very much, you know, I've, I've spoken to a lot of people about, about you and your leadership style and it always came across as one of servitude. You know, there was a, there was a deep, deep sense with the people that were led by you, myself included, that you were truly in it for the guys and for the mission. And you never gave across a sense that you're a careerist and, you know, we were just sort of part of the fodder that you needed to climb climb to get ahead. And that can't be said for a lot of people, either, you know, in the military or, or in the corporate world. So do you think that's a fair statement of yourself? And where does that come from? Yeah, well, yeah upfront, my, my intuitive emotion is to be uncomfortable with everything that you say. Although there's much I don't want to disagree with because I, I guess I've hoped and occasionally planned to achieve that sort of outcome. So I, I am a believer first and foremost, and it's a believer in whatever your cause is. In my case, it was a belief combined with a deep passion for uh, soldiering and particularly soldiering in special operations. And I found it was a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy in that respect in terms of, you know, I fed very much on the energy of the people in the environment when we were serving together and all the way through. And it's funny, as a, in recent years as a staff officer, I've felt increasingly detached from that. And when I reconnect, I go back to our regiment or I, you, know, you, you catch up with some of the soldiers, past and present. It's amazing how quickly that sense of energy, passion and by extension belief comes back to the fore. So being a believer in something was first and foremost. And if I take one step back from that, I think I was fortunate you know, I grew up in an environment where I had a Welsh father, a New Zealand mother. My, my father had been in the military, the British Army, briefly, very briefly in the 60s. And he'd served with the territorial SAS. But what that meant was when we came to Australia and when I was growing up, he was active in the association because he too believed in this idea of serving. And I think he'd never been on operations, formally speaking, certainly never seen a shot fired in anger. And I think he felt that the best way that he could serve a community that he he had embraced was through supporting and enabling those who had seen the worst of it. And by being exposed to that, I think that set my foundations when I joined the Army. There's no doubt that I joined the Army purely to go to Special Forces. My interest in the rest of the military was quite limited, to be honest. It was, it was merely a sort of pathway to get to the ultimate goal. And I wasn't really interested in stopping until I had achieved that goal or it was beyond my grasp. As luck would have it, I got through the various gates. And to come back to your, your point, my style and approach, I think it's evolved over time, but the core of it has remained the same. And that was fundamentally a belief in people and the mission, and also a belief in treating people the way you'd like to be treated. So, so to sum that up, it's funny, you used the term servitude. I didn't know this term servant leader for a long time, and I only probably became aware of it in the last 10 years. But if, I, if someone's to ask me, what's the style of leadership that you aspire to, it's the servant leader. Because if you can enable people who are infinitely more capable than yourself and your gift is to be able to create space for them to do their magic, then to me that's success. To others it might be chaos or inviting anarchy, but to me I've never been let down and I've never seen anyone come up short when they've been put in an environment where they are uniquely enabled to bring their, their talents to bear as an individual or a collective. So let, let's stick there for a moment with um, 
servitude leadership. Servitude leadership, is that the term? A servant leader. Servant leader. Someone has coined the term out there, right. yeah. So what does it mean and what does it not? So I think that the general idea behind it is that the person who's in the leadership position, using some of your words earlier, is not in it. They're not a careerist. They're not really in it for themselves. They're not necessarily looking at the next rung and how everything can be sort of set up to either make them look good or to generate a success that guarantees that they can keep progressing. I like to think that they they invest, they marinate, they're completely immersed in the situation and the environment that surrounds them. And because they're either formally or informally given the platform of leadership, they then choose to essentially reflect it back on the group and work out how can I as the leader best serve you so that you as an individuals and collective, again, can achieve your, your greatest outcome. Now, there's a balance between that because we also serve up. We've got leaders who expect certain things of them. And the Special Forces community, when it's been at its best and most empowered, shall I say, and that's not always been the case, we've been fortunate to work for leaders, commanders, who have given us an intent statement. You know, Brett, I need you to do this. Brett, by the end of this year, I need the counter-terrorist capability on the East Coast to be able to achieve these things. Or actually, in certain cases, it was, Brett, what do you think the counter-terrorist capability should look like by the end of this year? And then I'd come back to people like you, Tony, and we'd sit with, you know, your sergeant and the other junior leaders all the way down to the, you know, the, the youngest operators and work it out. And then we'd obviously do our, our bit to codify that, put it back up, and then get the, essentially get the approval and when we didn't get the approval, we, we just worked forward until we had to seek forgiveness. And that did occur from time to time as well, as you might remember. But to that end, you know, being a servant leader, a lot of what I felt I had to do then and what I do even now is I provide a buffer from a lot of that white noise that occasionally comes from the bureaucracy. You know, I've got to do a certain degree of interpretation and then hopefully give clear guidance so someone like yourself or any of the amazing people we serve with, Tony, could just get on with business. And as much as possible, you leave them alone. So, you know, by the time I became a commanding officer, each of the company commanders, so they're commanding about 110 personnel, you know, they, they got a mission guidance letter. And on it, it had a bit of preamble. They had a main effort, a supporting effort, and some supporting tasks. And I said to each one of them, if we didn't speak again for the rest of the year, everything you need is on this page. And you should feel comfortable if that's the what to achieve it using whatever means and, and however you felt was appropriate. And then we, we check back in so we remain on the same page and we just sort of tap left and right. And it's a it's a 360-degree engagement. So while I had used some of those mechanisms, I think, earlier, I was still learning when I was working with you. Yeah, by the time I came, became a commanding officer as a lieutenant colonel, yeah, the regiment was 800-something people all up, you realise you just can't cover all the ground all the time. And nor did I necessarily want to, but I wanted everyone to be empowered. And the mission guidance letter and some really, really limited, as in um, short-length guidance for the rest of the unit seemed to be sufficient to allow everyone to just move out. And if I needed to, you know, it was like the classic take the rope and run with it, but if I needed to sort of pull on the rope or give it a bit of a tug, that was easy enough to do. And because of the relationships we were able to generate, because everyone did feel empowered and trusted, and because we had taken the guesswork out of the relationship, and I think that's another part of servant leadership, everyone was just able to get on with it and everyone felt that they had their part to play and they could define it clearly within a, a framework without feeling that they were basically you know, trying to execute someone else's or sing someone else's song, so to speak. They felt they were contributing to it, regardless of whether you're at the top or the bottom of the hierarchy, so to speak. It's interesting you talk about empowerment there because um, engagement, empowerment, is one of the most critical issues at the moment in, in modern business at, at any level. And all the statistics and all the surveys say that, um, you know, senior managers are not engaged in their job. Middle managers are not engaged in their job. Junior employees are not engaged in their job. They're rocking up, they're collecting a payday, and they'd rather be doing something else. So when you're not engaged, you're either actively disengaged, like you're trying to bring the system down from within, or you're just mentally checked out and you'd rather be doing something else. And particularly millennials, you know, all the all the sort of the feedback coming through, the survey results coming through is that it's not that they don't earn enough money and it's not that they want to change jobs, you know, all the time. 
It's that they want to be engaged. They want yeah. to feel like they are part of something bigger than themselves. And I think that's all we all want, really. We want to feel like we're part of something. And and that's the system was built up where you and I used to work to enable that. But really, it wasn't always like that. And it did depend on the specific leaders that, that were around. And, you know, I think what what you were able to do for us, you know, setting my mind back, what, what are we, 15 years or something, was that sense of empowerment where, and, and I think it's it's tough for leaders to, in essence, what, what you're saying there when you're saying, you know, sometimes you wouldn't come up with the answer, you'd ask the, you know, the people below you, what, what do they think, what do they want the answer to be? And, you know, sometimes the people above you had the, the confidence almost to not have all the answers and to, to ask mm. you on the ground what, what you thought. And that it's actually, yeah, quite rare. And um, what do you think in the, from your experience there, from a military point of view, what do you think can be garnished from that into the commercial sector and the, you know, the small, small amount to date, the small amount of exposure that you've had to it? it oh, look, increasingly, I, I'm certainly of the belief that the ideas and experiences are transferable in, in both directions and, and at their core the drivers are the same. And I'll pick up on a couple of points. The first was I was fortunate, again, my, my father made a career out of human resource management. He worked for Kellogg's, worked for Boral, worked for a number of big companies. Having come from the UK, he was, he was one of the early adopters of corporate leadership programs. And, and he made a point of uh, blending military leaders with commercial leaders to, to educate the, the management groups and I remember him telling me a story at, at Kellogg. He, he was running an outdoor education activity with an ex-Royal Marine down in the Kangaroo Valley. And at the end of it, yeah, one of the very senior managers came up to him with a bit of a smile on his face. And my dad asked him, yeah, what have you, you know, what, hey, what, what are you so happy about? And he said, hey, I, I think I made my first decision today. <laughs> um, and, and this guy had come from a sales background. I think it took my father aback, but I remember him sort of recounting these sorts of stories to me. Uh, that, yeah, there were many managers out there who were good salespeople who, who obviously made a reputation in business. But when it came to leadership, organisations often functioned and, and prospered in spite of them. It was always quite a stunning thing to consider. And I think we, we could all, wherever we come from, we can all reflect on examples of that. It's present in the military, it's present in government, it's, and I'm sure it's present in corporate. But coming back to it, and you know, another thing that I was reminded of is when I was commanding officer, I had a very close relationship with a professional football team, a rugby team, and I had looked to develop two but no more than three relationships of that nature with other elite organisations where they had people, men or women, of a similar age and stage because I'd had enough exposure to realise that, that young, let's say millennials or 20-somethings, all get motivated by very similar things, whether they're rugby players or gunfighters or corporate types. And there is that in those early days because there's a high level of confidence. Um, their confidence is obviously rising rapidly and everyone's very, very outgoing and ambitious and enthusiastic. You know, they're, they're like the stallion that needs to be sort of managed but given the space to, to prance around, so to speak. It's probably the wrong <laughs> example to use. But this, this football coach and I found that we would often be able to finish each other's sentences because our people needed the same things in terms of the inputs and the space to create the outputs. So I'm, I'm convinced first and foremost that there's, there's the majority of what we experience is transferable. The other thing I would say is that for me, each to their own, and there's a comfort level with this, but I always believed in this idea that as the commander or leader, I was infinitely accountable and responsible, but I was happy to let go of control. And you, you would remember, Tony, you know, that we actually had a formal process where I hand control to you in a counter-terrorist incident. And for everyone else out there, if you remember the Link Cafe siege, let's just say that the military had resolved that. There is a point at which control would be handed down um, the line and, and someone like Tony would be going there and it's entirely on his shoulders, either uh, someone in his late 20s or otherwise is essentially going to do something that may change the path of Australian history or you know, Australian national interest. And while we had a formal method for that, equally we have a system or a, a uh, philosophy called mission command or directive control. The names keep changing, but the essence is the same. And it is that idea that as a leader, you've always got to understand your accountability and your responsibilities, but you've got to let go. 
And I think that's so critical wherever you are. And I think what we see most of the time is kind of the reverse to that, where we see people, leaders, executives, principals, whatever, feeling like they need to have absolute control over every single thing. But then when it really comes down to it, avoid the accountability and the extreme accountability that I've, that I've seen you practice. Very hard to give up control of a situation and trust, yeah. and trust your people. But maintaining control is, it's almost a sense of insecurity, I think, within oneself that's Im- impossible to deliver on anyway. I agree. And, and well, I actually have a, this idea or theory perhaps that it's probably more prevalent out there in, in the, the business world and the entrepreneurial world most definitely. You know, I found in the military, I think traditionally we, when we went to the Royal Military College, we were taught a method of leadership which emphasised maintaining control. Mm. And I think for the mainstream and maybe large-scale organisations, there was a logic to that. I think I was always drawn to special forces because I just I felt that style to be too suffocating. But I'm increasingly of the belief that actually where that might have been relevant once upon a time, it's not now. I'm coming back to your early point about millennials. You know, millennials have had so many more opportunities perhaps than we had in terms of access to information, education and experience in the early years. And no wonder they, they want more out of life. But the consequence is, uh, and this is with soldiers, it's, it's, it's so incredibly true. The consequence is they're not there because they have to be. They're not there because they're from a blue-collar background or trying to escape jail or something like that. They're there because they want to be. And in some cases, we had people joining special forces directly off the street who had postgraduate degrees or they had, they had story and they had whole life experience beforehand. You know, and some of the guys with sleeve tattoos who are extremely well built and you know, would swear and drink and 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 you know, fit into any of the roughest crowds were often the ones who are concurrently studying a PhD. And these are true stories. You know, one one of the guys is is in fact he's probably getting close to finishing his PhD in nuclear science. Others left to finish their PhDs. Others, while we we're in operations, went from a year ten certificate to a master's degree because they just realised that there was more to this environment. And the consequence was the leader doesn't necessarily have the experience or the education anymore. He just has, he or she just has the position or the appointment which empowers them to you know, create the environment. And again, I'm, I'm surmising that it's the same in business. And I'll finish this, this point by saying I was in Iraq last year. I was on a core level headquarters. So you can imagine a core generally you know, covers uh, probably in excess of 30 to 40,000 people. It was responsible for the entire operation in the Middle East across 71 nations and while it was a US-led operation it was truly a coalition and I was the chief of strategy and plans and, and myself and one of the senior officers uh, senior to me had a conversation one day where there was a bit of tension and he sort of expressed to me that I was a little bit too entrepreneurial and he was far too traditional and he was unwilling to accept what I was saying to him about the environment and what was changing both internal to our you know, headquarters but also out there in the what we call the battle space, you know, out there on the ground. And that was early in our tour. And fast forward about six months later, there was a there was an acknowledgement that, okay, yeah, I now get it. And I realise there's, there's now a need for more of an entrepreneurial level of leadership than there is perhaps for just a traditional approach because the environment is so fast moving and fast changing. As is business now as well. Right, and I was going to say, and I think those sorts of analogies resonate in business from what I'm seeing through, you know, through a lot of my peripheral reading and from, you know, what you're teaching me, as are a few others, yeah. Yeah, that's good, man, that's good. So I want to, um, I want to change tack a little bit here and, you know, when, when you and I were talking about, I said, man, I really want to get you onto the show but I don't know what we can talk about, if anything, because, you know, you're still inside the system and, you know, we've got to be careful and blah, blah, blah. And you came back wanting to talk about imposter syndrome. And it really struck me because your external persona is, is absolutely one of self-confidence and mastery of your sort of domain. But I was really keen to explore that further because, you know, so much of this show, if it's working, what I'm hoping it's doing is, you know, unpacking some of the fears that we all have and some of the, the limiting factors that we have and and imposter syndrome and fear of failure and fear of success are, you know, some of the big sort of ticket items that stop people moving forward and stop people kind of realising their dreams. So maybe talk us through that as a quote-unquote syndrome and how you've been able to overcome it 
and whether it's all negative or maybe whether there's some positives out of it as well. Yeah, it's funny. When I first mentioned that to you, it was a little bit tongue-in-cheek as much as there was also some authenticity to it, but I didn't necessarily think you'd jump at it. <laughs> so, but I'm glad you did because I think, again, I'm, you know, I'm 46 years old and if I went back 10 years, I probably wouldn't have been willing to talk about those things that I was still getting my head around. So first of all, for me, you know, imposter syndrome is defined by the sense of, of not necessarily being worthy or feeling worthy or good enough, no matter what your bio or your background says or suggests. Yeah, this sense of perhaps, hey, someday I'm going to be found out as a, as a fraud, that I've been winging this thing my whole, my whole life, this whole time. And just at, at, at the point where you, you kind of think you, you, you should have made it or that you are good enough, you give yourself some reason, some reason to doubt or some reason to destroy that perspective of yourself and break it back down to I can barely add up a bunch of numbers or string a sentence together, let, let alone you command lead soldiers or make a million dollars or whatever it might be. So there'll be variations on that theme, but it's interesting for me. But yet while I was in command of our regiment, you know, again with 800 soldiers, we're in the middle of some high-end war fighting. We had people who'd been killed, people being wounded, um, and all sorts of other issues that were starting to to present. Oh, yeah, I was fortunate to be surrounded by a group of uh, human performance specialists, including psychologists, uh, rehab case managers, doctors, and alike. And we spent a lot of time together, probably initially not because we wanted to, but because we were trying to manage all of our wounded, injured and ill. And we were trying to do it in a way that was tailored to each individual's needs and wasn't just focusing on the fact that they've been blown up, been shot, or they've, uh, yeah, they, they've got some sort of sports injury. You know, we're looking at it as a human performance system. And so it was funny, through that experience, and this is 2012, 2013, we got onto this discussion of, Ultimately, it was imposter syndrome, and it was the psychs that I was working with who, who actually said, "Well, this is actually this is what it is, and it's a real thing." So, plenty you can go and look it up and sort of make sense of it for yourself. You know, if it's if it's in simple simple terms, you know, finding fault with yourself with your prior experiences, there is a downside to that, and and the downside is that maybe underneath uh, your confidence is challenged, and also you don't get to enjoy the fruits of your labour. But the upside from my point of view is I've never forgotten where I've come from. You know, many days of the week I feel like I'm a lieutenant who's just graduated from Duntroon and I, I struggle to understand how any senior leader has been willing to give me responsibility. But then in my rational moments I can reflect on 20, 30 years of experience and be comfortable that, okay, yeah, I have earned that right and I have demonstrated my ability. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm, I'm now comfortable to, I guess, rest on my laurels or lay back and, and think it's all great and I'm great and what I the next thing that comes out of my mouth is going to be you know, brilliance. In fact, quite the opposite. So I always remember where I came from and because I feel like a lieutenant, perhaps on the passion side, I remain connected to what I think it's all about. You know, in, in the military context, it's, it's the people who ultimately deliver the effect. And as much as there'll be great leaders who'll come up with the plans and whatnot, really, it's in the hands of the, the operators. It's in the hands of the people who are making whatever it is that, that you're about. And by staying connected to that, all these things tie in. You know, I think I maintain my link to hopefully humility, this idea of being a servant leader. And I'm reminded every day that the people around me are incredibly talented, more talented than myself. And if the one thing that I do is enable them to go out there and do great things, well, that's success. So that kind of balances that imposter syndrome. Because the sum of our parts, again, gets us to, I think, the ultimate goal. And I don't for a minute think that I'm the one who's got the solution or that is going to you know, lead us to nirvana. But I, I think I can, certainly, I can certainly be a positive contributor and influence on that process. I'll pause there, mate. But that's a little bit of stream consciousness, but that, that kind of captures for me imposter syndrome. The challenges that I have as a person, perhaps as a leader, but also how I draw some benefits from it. That's gold. That's gold. So one of the last times that we saw each other face-to-face -face was at a funeral. And unfortunately, guys like us from units like we came mm. from, unfortunately, often the reunions come up at a, at a military funeral. And, and it was for right. an amazing guy that, that you and I worked with, you much more so than me. And I was sitting next to you at the funeral and 
you were just about to take over the role as the head of the regiment. And it was in a very, very high operational tempo phase. And, Mm. you know, you and your wife were sitting there and I was just, I was just watching you both. And we had a couple of little chats, but it it was your turn next. And unfortunately, what that meant in that context was that in all likelihood, there was going to be another another operational funeral in all likelihood on your watch and just the sense of obligation that you sort of took on through that. And I don't really want to get too deep into that sort of stuff, but but there's a lot of work that you were doing while you were in that role, particularly around post-traumatic stress. And then another term that's just starting to pop up now, post-traumatic growth. What can you Mm. tell me about those and, and some of the sort of Certainly, none of the incidents and none of the. I don't want to get into any of the, any of the yeah, sort of yeah. the operational stuff, but because that that PTSD and and maybe post traumatic growth can come out of any realm, not just a military context. Can we talk a little bit about that? Because I think you were at the cutting edge of that for a fair while there. Yeah. Time, time will tell as to what our contribution might have been as a team there. Look, it's a bit of a foundation. It's funny. I didn't think you'd bring that up. That funeral, and I it, it sort of get throwing back to that moment. And you're absolutely right. You know, I was contemplating a whole lot of things and, and from the moment I'd been warned out for the appointment, you know, I had about nine months. And this is, I've tried to sort of analogise this for business purposes, but as soon as people know you're going to come into a role, they'd come out of the woodwork, a good, bad and otherwise. And, and many just want to, you know, wish you well. Many want to just put a seed in your head. Some want you to solve their problem. There's no doubt that you get a theme fairly quickly of, of what the issues are. And, and all those who've walked before you and all those who'll go after you have done everything in their power to do the best by the organisation possible. I'm a firm believer in that. But there was no doubt that by the time I was taking over our organisation, it was very, very tired. And, and it had been growing nonstop since the late 90s. And so that wasn't a surprise. Even if you took away the operational activity in Timor, Iraq and Afghanistan that, that they've been involved in, and even if you took away the combat experiences and the, the, the trauma and tragedy that we were having to deal with, you know, there was still already a lot of issues there. So I was fortunate enough that I had been around in the beginning in the late 90s and then you and I had served together there and then, and then here I was coming back to the organisation, probably at the peak of its performance. So I had, I had the history and I had the context, but I also had a clear understanding from those who were serving in and around us as to what the issues were. And, and, and I guess while ultimately it was starting to manifest as post-traumatic stress or mental health issues associated with service were coming to the fore. And so I was, I was determined that that was going to be a priority issue for me. But it wasn't going to be about, hey, let's, let's put PTSD up there as a banner and just you know, give everyone as much access to psychs and drugs and other things as possible. This was about understanding what all that was about and what it meant. And I alluded to a few things earlier. I was fortunate, first and foremost, to fall in upon just a remarkable group of people, civilians and military alike, psychs, these um, rehab case managers, the chaplain, the doctor, the physio. They were a uh, really diverse mix of people from all walks of life, but they had one common goal, and that was to make our people as good as they possibly could be, whether they were at the top or the bottom of their game. And this is where that link between post-traumatic stress and growth comes in because I and we, I think, came to the conclusion that the elements that could be applied to both issues were from the same place. And we actually created a human performance wing where if you were recovering from uh, wounds, illness or injury, or indeed you were about to be God's gift to the Rhodes Scholar Program in Oxford or you were about to make it big in ocean-going racing Whatever it was going to be, this was going to be the incubator through which we would optimise your performance. And if you were broken, well, we are going to get you back to wherever you wanted to be and as, as far along that pathway as we possibly could. And if you weren't broken, it was all about then you know, making you realise your full potential. And the two fed on each other. And the operators, the people who were in the middle of that, you know, the, the humans, were feeding on each other and learning and sharing. And sometimes it was the guy who's at the top of his game who's learning from the soldier who'd just been shot, who was told he's never going to walk again, who's about to go out there and, and run a record fitness test. You know, and, that's, and I'm alluding to real examples. 
you know, a guy who'd be told there's no way you'll be back on operations for at least three years because your femur's been obliterated, but within nine months, against the common regulations, we've got him cleared fit for duty because he can he can outperform everyone else. Yeah, we've had a guy who was about to be kicked out of the army after an incident in Afghanistan that left him with uh, metal in his back. And he was actually developing mental health issues, not because of the accident or the incident, but because of how he's being treated. And we managed to find all the loopholes. And, and I say this in a positive sense, and he's still serving today, two or three operations on. And the one thing he couldn't do and amongst everything else was parachute. So as a commander, I had the authority to waive his need to parachute because he could do all these other things. And I would analogise that wherever you are, you know, there's similar examples in business and just in life. But we talk about post-traumatic stress or post-traumatic growth. You know, these days, mental health is the catch-all. And there's, there's a positive end to that cycle or spectrum and there's a negative end. And all of us are going to journey along it at some stage. And if you get a little bit of assistance from the right sort of people, I think, like I'm a firm believer, you will realise your potential and you will, afford, you will avoid spending long periods in the darkness. But it's certainly not, not something that most people can do on their own. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely, mate. Soldiering and mental health, soldiering and acknowledging mental health as a, as a real thing, and not just soldiering, but the whole special forces, alpha type, rah-rah, yeah. and acknowledging mental health. I mean, that's a, that's a big chasm to cross. When was it that talking about mental health became something that was not just accepted but embraced and actually could be sort of sculpted into something that could turn positive for the individual and the organisation? Because, I mean, I, I don't think it was – I mean, I, I got out a long time ago now, but, like, what was it, 2005? I don't think it was the same back then. And going back, you know, you hear the terrible stories from Vietnam, you hear the terrible stories from sort of World War Two, World War One, et cetera, about mental health or PTSD or whatever as a dark shadow hung over all of these people, but it was never discussed. So how how was it that you were able to, and I'm not just saying you as an individual, I know you're part yeah. of a system, but how was it that you were able to sort of bring this up, make it at least a journey that could be kind of dealt with in a positive f- fashion? And you know, mental health being one of the most chronic illnesses throughout society right now, is there anything that you could draw on from that high-performance team environment that you came from in dealing with it that the rest of us around around society could perhaps adopt? That's a big question. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll give it a crack and I'll, I'll, try, I'll try a micro, sorry, macro to micro. Yeah. The, the first is... I don't think that there was a light bulb or is a light bulb moment. And I'm firmly of the belief that while we've got the banners up there and we're starting to get some awareness, both of the positive and, and if you like, negative aspects of it, the understanding is still uh, wafer thin. And, and you talk to the, the very eminent psychologists and, and even psychiatrists about this, they'll tell you that we really don't know what we're talking about. And in a military context, particularly in, let's say, the, around the 2010 timeframe, it was often easiest to, to label someone with, someone with post-traumatic stress than, say, a um, personality disorder because there was, or, or something else because there was no treatment mechanism for those other things. There's this idea of moral injury that's starting to be developed as a formal idea and, and starting to gain some acceptance. Yeah, it sits to one side of post-traumatic stress. And, again, it's something that's probably more consistent with soldiers who've had to go out there and be involved in the act of, of killing or, or violence. But actually moral injury can be something that all of us are exposed to, a moral dilemma, one where you don't do what you think you should have done or in reflection you reconsider the effect and impact. But all these things meant that, that the psychs would tell me, I've, I've given him a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress because if I don't, he won't get access to what he needs. But we need to do that and then we need to manage him individually. And if that was in the 2010 timeframe, so macro, you know, we've got, we've got a banner, we've got awareness going, people are starting to nod their head. We're trying to destigmatize it, but I would say that's still a journey. Mm. I believe there is still a significant stigma associated with it. And in the military context, and even probably a sporting context, the stigma often comes from people saying, well, you have an issue, therefore we can no longer use you, or therefore you are broken and not recoverable. But, hey, here's a payout 
or here's, I'm going to hand you over to another department, essentially, I'm done with you. You know, all these things are, in my mind, are wrong. And I think when we do hit the light bulb moment, indeed, I think it won't be a flicker, it won't be a moment, it will be uh, the lights coming on brighter and brighter. We'll understand that from you know, the moment you start school, to, or, you know, from the cradle, as they say, to the grave, you're on this journey. And the more you can learn about your resilience, the more you can learn about how to manage yourself, identify strengths, weaknesses, vulnerabilities, and the tools to enhance your own performance, both as an individual and as part of a collective, then, then the better that we in the collective will be at solving this problem and avoiding situations where people become subject to this syndrome, so to speak, or this disorder. So I would just, to zero in on one thing, I would just say that I was fortunate and unfortunate. I was unfortunate because I happened upon an organisation at a time when it was suffering greatly from the consequences of its service. And it wasn't just the people who were going outside the wire and literally engaged in combat at uh, close quarters, you know, sometimes less than a metre, sometimes in a very intimate sense, but it was those that were supporting them. It was those who sometimes didn't leave Australia but were the ones helping to pick up the pieces when they came home. Every single one of those people, which means every single one of us, no matter where you are, is at risk. And I had just a remarkable group of people who once, I guess, brought together with a common vision idea. We, we started off as a welfare board, but we really became a human performance team. These people worked selflessly and without rest to try and understand concurrently to then resolving the issues. And it was a learn by doing approach. So from an entrepreneurial point of view, fail early, fail often. Well, I'd like to think we didn't fail, but where we made mistakes, the person you know, the, who is probably the one suffering the most was very much involved and engaged and listened to. And they would often be your leader, the person who's guiding you along the way. But we learned quickly, we adjusted, and then we saw success. Now, what we experienced was the result of a really highly pressurised environment where literally lives were on the line. As you move away from that, there's less imperative to apply that sort of focus and attention. And therefore, I think there's many parts of both our organisation and many other organisations, no doubt, where it gets paid lip service, where there is still a stigma attached, where people will say the words but don't understand what they mean and probably still bifurcate growth from stress as opposed to understanding it's about humans and about you know, our performance. What is the growth bit? You know, post-traumatic growth, it's a term that most people wouldn't have heard. We only ever hear the negative. What is that and how have you seen that manifest? Well, again, I think, you know, it might be a bit cliche to start with and I know some of the people, in, at least in the Australian context, including some of the Soldier On crew, you know, we're doing a lot to change the, um, change the narrative and change people's perspective. So rather than talking about disorder, they talked about just post-traumatic stress and then as they understood it more, they started talking more about post-traumatic growth. And, and indeed, this, there's, a, there's a wonderful woman I've worked with who's still in the organisation, but she got out as a nurse and then started a master's, which became a PhD in, in essentially identity. And, and so what is post-traumatic growth? Well, I think this is all about identity. And all of us, again, all through our lives, have different things and different people that contribute to our identity. When we join an organisation, and the military is, a, is an extreme stereotype, you know, you kind of get your old identity broken down and whittled away to some degree and then replaced with a fit-for-purpose identity. And then when you go into different parts of the military, like special forces, it happens again. And in some cases you gravitate towards where your natural identity, I guess, finds, finds equilibrium or finds satisfaction, or indeed, again, you get moulded in that direction. So there's a growth aspect to that. But the same is true on the other side. And this is, I actually would apply this now to being a middle-aged male officially at 46. Okay. And while I don't think I'm at risk of midlife crisis, I'm probably aware of midlife awareness and it links into all these things. You know, For all the things that I've done that I've been fortunate to be part of and the experiences I've had that should just make me a higher and more enlightened being, you know, I probably had periods of anxiety or you know, underconfidence that exceed anything I've ever had in my in, in my early years. And it's a product when you start to look into it of what happens in your mid-40s as a male. You're starting to question your role in life. You know, I've done all these things. 
what am I going to do next? What does, dare I say, retirement look like? And so rather than be, you know, being on a growth phase in some ways, you're kind of on a decline and you've got parts of the system and society telling you as much and it gets quite confusing. It's like a dichotomy. So I know that your original question was what is post-traumatic growth? I think it was a term coined to start to, to move the conversation along from just stress. But what I think it's all about is identity. And I think it's about understanding the peaks and troughs of that. And there is no reason why we can't all continue to grow even through the troughs. And that's what I think, that, that's what I associate post-traumatic growth with, whether you've been war fighting for the last 20 years or whether you've just been treading water in the corporate world or, or something else. Yeah, it's understanding what those peaks and troughs are and, and trying to grow yourself through them and solidifying your identity, you know, being a good human. Yeah, that's terrific, man. That's terrific. So I wasn't necessarily going to go here, but, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating to hear someone like you, 46, 47, achieving within a military, within a special forces context, on the fast track in terms of the ladder keeps getting kind of higher and higher and, and you keep climbing it and ticking all the boxes to continue to climb it. And based on what society tells us, you're doing all the right things and you're you're ticking all the right boxes to have a successful life. And what I always find so uh, so um, interesting, just at a human level about, about you and your perspective, is that as you continue to climb the, the corporate ladder inside the, the military and the special forces environment, you've never stopped looking elsewhere for other experiences and questioning your role inside the system. Mm. I mean, talk us through that because that's, it's not usual, man. It's not usual for someone who, in a corporate context, you're moving up from, you know, department head to regional head, you know, now you're in charge of a business unit, you're on track to be the CEO of a, of a very large organisation or, or some something like that. And yet you're calling out that, you know, you're in this sort of 46, 47 zone of, as you said, you know, it's not a midlife crisis, but it's definitely a midlife retrospective. How are you doing that and coping with that and making sure that what the next part of your career looks like is what, what BC wants and not necessarily just what the machine wants? And balance that yeah. with your innate sense of servitude and wanting to do the right thing by your people and, and your army and your nation. There's a few things in that, and it probably captures the conundrum in some ways. So there's the age thing, which I, when you look into a bit of the research, is you know, part of the human cycle, I guess. And it's, I guess, interesting where it comes up in your development. At that point in your life where you are the master or should be the master of your skill set, based on skills, knowledge and experience, you can often be thrown into a cycle of questioning your own ability or even your, your right to be there or the role that you're going to play at the next level. In the context of the military, it's really interesting. I, I think everyone would, would identify with this idea that it's a pyramid, that, yeah, there's, it's competition, both overt and discrete. There are different ways to play that competition or play that game. And I, I, I guess I've been an active player. I've exercised choice, but I've also been conscious of the things that I will and will not do. And I'd like to think that I've always been true to the people, true to the organisation. And I've, I've you know, saluted to the front and served as opposed to put my, my own preferences first. And that hasn't changed. But I'm conscious that one thing that I've failed to do in this context was necessarily command or manage up as well as I should have. And sometimes when I look back, that maybe affected my performance as a leader in, inside a unit because maybe the, the organisation didn't get everything that it deserved because I'd didn't say or do the right things or engage the right leaders in the right way. And so there was an organisational output to that and I've had to acknowledge that. Um, on a personal level, I think that's probably contributed in some ways to the fact that while I've continued to progress, I have hit a point in the organisation where my progression is no, uh, is definitely not guaranteed and I think uh, exists, it will be based on fickle decisions. The organisation's perceived need, I think certainly their sense of whether I can cut it at the higher levels. And within myself, I've concluded I'm not a bureaucrat. I'm not a good bureaucrat. And they need good bureaucrats. They need good politicians. They also need good warfighters and they need good practical leaders. But if the organisation decides that they've got enough of those things and what they want is a bureaucrat 
and in 2020, you're not going to meet, you know, fit that criteria, then you've got to question, the organisation questions your role, will act to prevent your progression, and then you've got to question why you are still there. And in my case, you know, I'm a believer in the organisation, in the cause, I'm a believer in service and in our people. And I still think I've got something to offer that's both unique and valuable, but I recognise that there are some aspects of the way the organisation works that I'm no longer compatible with. And in my moments of irreverence, I will argue with myself that, well, they need someone like me to challenge the system. But in other moments, I'll recognise why I'm missing the cues that allow progress to continue within the structure that is acceptable. What strikes me there is you're able to, even though, you know, you've, you've been doing this for 30 years, you're able to separate yourself from your job in essence. And the, you know, the military is is more than a job and, and your role within it is certainly yeah. more than a job. But so few of us can actually do that, particularly people that have been with the same organisation for nigh on 30 years as when that happens. Our sense of self is linked directly to our, our place within the organisation and, in fact, our, our right. continued movement up within the organisation. So you're somehow, and this is actually getting to the heart that I find fascinating, you're somehow, even though you're deeply embedded in it and believe in it and you have that sense of servitude for it, you're still able to disconnect yourself from it so that if you stopped progressing or if they tapped you on the shoulder and said, okay, BC, your, your time is up, that I get a sense mm. that you wouldn't collapse into a heap, you know, in the bottom of the of the cupboard in the fetal position because <laughs> not 100% of your self-worth and self-identity is, is linked to it. And I think that's hard for most people. I think it's extraordinary for someone in, in your position given the amount of time that you've spent in uniform and the jobs, the jobs you've done. I think more of us need to be doing that, quite frankly. Mm. And it's funny you should say that because I, I don't consider anything unusual. And, again, I think I've been blessed to be surrounded by such amazing people who are always looking yeah, beyond the next ridge line, looking under the bed, you know, so they had that inherent curiosity and, and that's, I guess, both, you know, I guess, contributed to my own curiosity but also fed my need to ensure that I'm not assuming that I'm still fit for purpose or that, you know, my last gig, so to speak, was, was still viewed as, as a reason for um, not assuming that while I might have been considered you know, suitable and highly effective at the last in the last role, that that meant that I was going to continue to be so. So, and I've also seen some people who I regard very highly, both former superiors and, and peers and subordinates who've got out thinking that they were killing it and that their you know, jobs are going to be thrown at them. And I've seen them flounder. Mm. Some of them have left bitter because they've been the blue-eyed boy or girl forever. And then the moment the system says they're not, they feel like they've been screwed as opposed to, no, no, there's... You're just one of many and you just hit that culminating point, whether it was circumstance, situation or, or performance or a combination. So, so I've been really conscious of that and I guess I've watched everyone else and I've, I've to some degree studied it, I've studied you and it's, it's kept me, I guess, conscious of my vulnerabilities and also aware of what I need to learn and understand. So, Tony, as you and I both know, you know our, our good friend who you put me on to who does uh, external coaching was extremely important in allowing me to understand my value proposition when I left or if, or if and when I leave to help me start to translate my language and my understanding of myself into the next environment because inevitably it will come. Wherever you are, yeah, we're all going to do different things. Sometimes we make assumptions about how prepared we are. Some people are happy, to, again, just to jump into it and start swimming. Well, I needed to do a bit of both. And I certainly in the last few years since I left the regimental environment and it was particularly that transition that triggered it for me, I had to start thinking about the future and start understanding what I was and what I was going to be. Uh, and through that, the best thing is that it's starting to codify for me what I am prepared to do inside the military and what, and what I will no longer do. And I wouldn't call that uh, restricted service, but I, I would acknowledge that I'm, I won't just serve on uh, blindly. But equally, when I get out, I have an increasing understanding of who I want to work with, what I want to contribute to, you know, how I'll generate self-worth, but also how I'll contribute to the human race. And, and it's worth me saying, you know, Tone, the conversations with you about social enterprise have become a cornerstone of the goals that I have when I leave. 
that I, having been involved in some pretty, pretty high-end destruction of physical proportions and realising that it, in the end it wasn't really achieving much that was good, I want to spend the back end of my life you know, contributing to, to building you know, a better society, so to speak. And I feel fortunate that I've had those exposures and opportunities that I've met people along the way that have helped me realise that. And at the age of 46, my mind's not close to it. Yeah, there's a, a retrospection that that it sounds like you're going through, and probably have been going through for a, for a long time. That that hope hopefully is like bursting out through the speakers, you know, on this on this podcast because so few of us do it. So so few of us sit back and actually analyze our lives, where we're at now, and 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 where we want to be doing. And um, you know, you're doing that in quite a a methodical way, I think. You know, you've reached out. You've you've got a you've had a, a coach, Phil Phil Crenigan, who who um, I'm going to have on the show, and he forces you to go through some some retrospection and and to you know yeah. ask big big questions about yourself and and where you want to go. And you've obviously you know done that and and taken it um, with both hands. And I think that's a, a really big theme that that more and more of us can can be doing and um and I probably don't do it enough myself I'm such a an action orientated guy sometimes I'm not retrospective enough and well planned out enough and and you certainly are so yeah so we're we're talking about you know the the role of leadership you're you know particularly you know focused on others and enabling the people below you to to grow and have a sense of empowerment and you know I'm I'm a massive believer of high performance teams so I just want to sort of go there, go there a bit. So, BC, one of the one of the things that that I, I speak a little bit about on the on the podcast is is high performance teams. And while I don't regret, you know, my decision to to leave that unit and move on to to other things, the one element that I always look back on fondly and regret not experiencing again, and I'm not sure I'll ever experience it again, is the high performance team culture. That that special forces unit and team of people, you know, really encapsulated, and and you're a big part of that. In your words, you know, what what is a high performance team, and how have you seen it manifest? And you know, how how do you think us in the in the civilian world can kind of try to emulate some of that some of that high performance team culture? Because I think mm. it's the most powerful thing there is in in team building and leadership and you know organizational performance. Yeah, it's a tough one to provide a succinct answer to. I might start off by saying I think when you were there, but also, again, at different times when I've taken over a team of one sort or another, I've often used the analogy of a uh, an international rock band, like a, one of the super bands, like a U2 or an NXS or something like that. I would uh, channel Malcolm Gladwell's stories about 10,000 hours, you know, 10,000 hours is what it took to become one of those incredible bands, and I think he uses the Beatles in particular as an example. But but the thing I really used to, to highlight about those bands, and, and we, we could think similar things about certain teams, is when they were playing, when they were performing, there was no verbal communication between the team members. There wasn't any necessarily any visual cues. Through the team that they had been able to generate, through a combination of rehearsals, through reflection, you know, debriefing, rebriefing, you know, maybe through experimentation, they had somehow managed to get themselves to a point where it was essentially a very intuitive process that was being undertaken. And there was a fundamental difference between those who, in the music sense, could play the notes and then those who could make that music and then just take it to a whole other level. And, again, we've seen, you know, rugby teams, you watch some of those games throughout a season and they're, they're pretty lacklustre. And I don't think spectator or player alike necessarily thinks it was particularly great. But then you get to the grand final and you see two amazing teams go up against each other and it's poetry. And, and it, it's, it's a real clash of titans and, and both teams at the end are completely spent and the mutual respect between them is, is quite clear because it's just been an incredible competition for, for, yeah, to, to achieve an outcome. And so I can easily analogise from those sorts of examples and experiences what I would want and what I would hope to both discover in a team but also what I'd want to create in a team. And I'm, I tend to think that there's, you've got to think small even when you're large 
So in a unit of 800 people, it was easy to have a small team mindset and get that rock band-like idea going and then multiply it, so to speak. And actually, I remember we had Dick Smith, of all people, come to the unit one day for a bit of a chat, and he made the point that he never built a business unit bigger than 20 people. So when he got to that magic number, he kind of pushed the unit off and then moved to the next one, even though he might have been ultimately responsible for a large multinational organisation. He'd always think in terms of 20 people. And for you and I, that's a platoon or a troop. And so that makes a lot of sense to us as military people. And probably in business, I'm sure everyone can think of cells or teams that aren't much bigger than that. And it's funny, when I leave, I know that I want to work in a small team and it won't be bigger than 20 people. So those high-performance teams have to have a a small team mindset but be able to scale it. And they've got to be able to think about whatever it is that's going to bring – all of their talents to bear and get them to the point where they can pretty much anticipate and intuitively interpret what everyone else is doing to make the music, you know, to make the poetry. And I think, I think that analogy is universal. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's good. And so, yeah, to bracket that, I think, you know, first and foremost, what in my sort of experience, what makes a high performance team is this sense of purpose that everyone has a collective understanding of the why, not just the what, not just the how, but the the why of what makes the group tick. And then the bedrock to it all, I think is, is trust that everybody trusts that their ideas are, are justified that, you know, when there is criticism, it's criticism of the, of the idea rather than the individual, you know, so we're not attacking at the individual. And then from that, everyone feels comfortable to share. And you, you come back to the rock band example, you know, the, the master of, of, of flow, of group flow, which is really what we're talking about yeah. here, is, is, yep. uh, is Miles Davis and uh, the jazz, famous jazz guy. And he would, he would talk about where, you know, a piece just went off in another direction and a reporter would say, how did you come up with that? Who came up with that idea? No one knew. Hmm. Like, no, after the event... Nobody knew actually who made the call to change in that particular direction. It was the it was the group the group flow the high performance team that that moved off yeah. and so much of that high performance sporting military context is it can seem more obvious because it's high octane in nature, but it yeah. can happen in business as well and it can happen in any sort of organisations. It may not just happen at the same velocity and violence, yeah. which is good. Which is good. Yeah. And, and if I can pick up on a few of your points, because you're right, and forgive me, I, I kind of went down a rabbit hole up front, but that sense of purpose, I agree, is that, yeah, that is fundamental and it ties in so many different things, you know, that idea of identity. You've got to create identity around your team and everyone's got to buy into it. And we talk about ownership versus stewardship. I think you can choose which side of that line or which part of the end of that spectrum you're on, but you've certainly got to be in that zone of, of buying in. As individuals, you know, while like people do tend to gravitate towards a like environment, one of the things I loved about special operations is, yeah, there might have been plenty of A types, but actually there are just plenty of other types as well. That's and in that in that high performance team, you know, everyone's an individual, and every millennial wants to be treated as a special person that they are. So being able to sort of capture that and that you know, be the sum of your parts, have the human dimension, and and in fact, if I go to another step, in certain cases. You know, find those people who are the misfits and the outcasts and then see what makes them tick and bring them to the fore. It's sometimes, I think, critical to the best high-performing teams versus just getting 10 of the same sort of people mm. or, you know, 10 people who on paper are high-performance. So that real individualization linked to the people, the team and the purpose I think is really, really important. And I and again, using that Dick Smith idea again, I don't believe it's any less relevant if you're talking about two people, 200 or 2,000. I think you can find good examples across that full spectrum. It's still personal. Everyone's still special. There's still a tailoring. But they all, you know, they buy in. They've got identity. They've got purpose. Yeah, those, they are fundamentals. And I think they're, they're pretty universal. It's great hearing you from a military point of view, talking about the individualism of the individual, particularly how young people, millennials, we, we seem to be calling them now, sort of demand it. <laughs> and because anyone who's never experienced the military would just assume that, you know, it's, it, everything's about a cookie cutter approach. And, and it certainly has yeah. been, I think, in the past. Um, 
but good leadership in any context, you know, appreciates the individual and is able to get the best out of them. And yeah, I think it's fascinating hearing you talk about that. And hopefully people that have had no military experience will will sort of see that if it's recognised as important and is actually practised, maybe not by everyone, but is practised inside, so, inside a military context, then, you know, it, it sort of gives even more credence and licence to, to use it in a, a corporate environment because it creates engagement and that's all we all, that's what we crave. We crave engagement inside our, yeah. our organisations. Uh, great stuff. So, so ultimately it would be up to you, but I, I, I would just make one comment you sort of triggered me to when we were talking about reflection. Now, I certainly think that's, that's important wherever you are in, in any stage of life, and I think it's one of those things you've got to teach your kids from early on, mm. um, and it's that, that balanced reflection between destroying yourself every day for what you didn't do versus just, uh, I know some people say three things I did well, three things I'd like to improve, three things maybe I'll just I sustain or discard. But without getting into that sort of thing, I just felt that we were fortunate in the military that we have an after-action review cycle and in special forces every time you ran through the room floor combat range, you know, and you did a live fire assault, we came out and we debriefed and it was a very egalitarian process regardless of the ranks in the room. And it was with the view that we'd break down what we've just done, acknowledge and agree where things we could change or do better and then go back and, you know, attempt to, I guess, fix those problems and then move on. And I think that that style of reflection review is really important and I, I imagine any organisation can benefit from a version of that. And that's obviously that's sort of the micro level. And then if you step up to the next level, it's that process for yourself uh, as an individual and a collective when you're looking at the more, uh, the larger, the, the bigger issues, so to speak. So I just, I just finished by saying for anyone in, on the journey, I think reflection is a critical thing and if you're not doing it, you are missing out and you're probably doing yourself a disservice, but it's got to be a healthy process. And as soon as it becomes unhealthy, and I certainly have been in that headspace before, that's where you've got to come back to your friends and sort of get that, that gut check and find the balance. That, that's probably the last thing I'd say, Tone. That's good, mate. That's good. Well, thank you, mate. Hey, mate I-, I appreciate it. Well, that's a wrap for today, everyone. I sincerely appreciate your time. I'd love to hear your feedback and get your reviews. If there's anyone who you think I should be interviewing, send me their details and I'll reach out. And please share this with anyone in your life who you think might connect with what we're all about here at The Antitoxin. Have fun out there today and try not to take life too seriously.